Hello, everyone. This is Mark Iskwitz, executive editor of MMM, and welcome to this week's edition of the MMM podcast, where my faithful co host Larry Dobrow and I interview people of note in and around healthcare marketing. I'm flying solo today from a hosting perspective, as Larry's tending to some magazine business. And uh, our guest today is Michael Kleinrock, who's director of research development for IQVIA, Institute for Human Data Science. Michael's been down in Philadelphia, not far from IQVIA headquarters, actually, where he moderated a panel at this week's bio convention called Changing the Paradigm of Treating Pain and Addiction One Year Later, during which they discussed efforts to curb the epidemic from different stakeholders. So very interesting indeed. And uh, we're going to talk to him about that. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Michael and I you know, go back a long way. We used to collaborate on the MMM Pharma Report, which was a review of spend trends in the industry, including the best-selling pharmaceuticals and therapeutic categories, as well as top companies, all based on U.S. data. And Michael would comment on it. And I always look forward to our chats, Michael, because you really helped put the numbers into perspective. I was always wondering, did you enjoy those talks as much as I did? I, I do, and I, I really love getting into the meat of where these numbers make sense. I mean, we can track who makes what money, and we can track what drugs make money, but it doesn't really make sense until you understand how that impacts patients and how uh, how it has a historical perspective. And so, you know, I was a journalism uh, uh, postgrad. I did a master's in journalism, and I, I focused on uh, history in my undergrad, and I've always felt like you can uh, you can learn a lot by looking at the historical context and by having something make a little bit more sense that way. So, you know, Sherlocking out those issues the way we used to is, uh, is something I've continued to do in our work in the Institute, and I just love doing it. Absolutely. I do notice the forensic trend uh, in your background. Uh, so you have a BA degree in history and political science, and you studied in the UK, right? I did. I, I, I didn't speak French very well. So when you're studying abroad, you need to go somewhere where they'll take you. Uh, and that was my rationale. But I turned it turned out that I really liked it as a young man. I found that the drinking age was my favorite part. Oh. <laughs> as you mentioned, you actually studied journalism, right? I did. I, I, uh, I had actually done some uh, amateur journalism uh, for a local radio station in my hometown up in Maine. Uh, and then I did a master's in, in journalism and radio production actually back in the UK. Uh, and I did some interning for a local news radio station, uh, you know, carrying a little tape recorder around uh, on the buses and subways of uh, and the tube of London, uh, getting uh, people's opinions about the issues of the day, and you know, calling up uh, key people, arranging interviews for the for the hosts of the shows I was working on. It was a lot of fun. Um, nice. Long time ago. And now the tables are turned on you. Now you're the guest. Well, uh, I know. I never thought it would happen. <laughs> um, so no, it's great to talk to you, um, and, and we don't do the, the old farmer report anymore. Uh, and you know, Quintiles IMS, as the company was called then, has since changed names to IQVIA. And um, we'll get back to that topic of the of the spend trends a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, but but first, um, I wanted to ask you about you know why your uh, the, excuse me the, the panel that you moderated at Bio. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so it was an interesting genesis. So Bio themselves had done a, a, a session in a track last year about uh, the opioid crisis. And they, they'd actually, they have an analytic wing of, of the Bio Trade Group, and they had done a, a report and then organized some speakers around it. And they were, um, right around the same time, we had published our annual review of the U.S. and had a heavy focus on the prescription opioid issues. And so when it came around to organizing this year's conference, we had a we had a clear overlap of interest. Um, and so we set up this panel um, 
between the organizers and, and IQVIA. And the key thing that was interesting about it is we wanted to bring uh, patient perspectives. So we had uh, we had uh, the CEO of a of a um, of a patient advocacy group for people with addiction issues, um, and we had a uh, CEO of a of a patient advocacy group for for pain. Uh, and so those are both of you know a very strong sort of patient and humanist perspective on uh, these issues, and they're very linked. And then we had a, a representative from Bio speak on the panel, and as well as from FDA. Um, and so I, I was moderating that panel first, sort of introducing some basic general facts, but also trying to tie together where those different perspectives come in. And so we've had uh, the biggest ever decline in prescription opioid usage happened last year in 2018. And it's at, at the end of eight years of continuous decline, basically, in the volume of usage. And so, you know, it's very, you know, strange and sort of uh, contradictory to hear our media coverage of the opioid crisis. And yet we're at the bottom end of eight years in a row of big declines in usage. And there's a, a disconnect there. And so we talked a lot about that and talked about, about how that's both the prescription opioid decline crossed with um, some real challenges around the illegal uh, market um, and, you know, the the human intersection between the people who need pain medication and sometimes get it, sometimes have barriers, and the people who become addicted uh, to uh, any form of uh, medication and controlled substances, whether they be prescription and regulated or they be uh, illicit. Um, but the societal harm and damage that comes from all that. So it's a very wide-ranging discussion, but represented from pe from people with a, a real deep currency in these issues, and and frankly, some fairly uh, strong uh, and compelling emotional stories to tell. Sure. So since since you mentioned and, and you summed all that up so beautifully, uh, let's just jump into it. So as as you mentioned, the uh, prescribing rate of opioids has been on the decline since 2012 and kind of bottomed out last year. What's the, the, the reason behind that? Is that kind of a combination of, of uh, you know, practice patterns? Um, and, uh, you know, what's behind the shift in, in opioid prescribing practice? You know, it's interesting. It's been a different thing every year since the peak, right? And so, you know, it had been rising early in the, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, the usage, partly because the, uh, the, the prescribing community had been, uh, you know, very clear that there was a much lower risk of addiction than, than with earlier treatments or had they had uh, believed that. And so the usage went way up. And then New York was the first state to change the scheduling of, uh, of some of these prescription opioids. And that started the, to tip us over. New York is one of the biggest states in the country by population and by usage of these drugs. And so their, their usage tipped the, the curve over and then a number of other states followed. And then over a period of years, we have state regulations, uh, we call them PDMPs, prescription drug monitoring programs uh, that control uh, when a patient receives or they track when a patient receives a prescription opioid, which then uh, makes it possible for a prescriber to make sure that the patient hasn't been to five different doctors. That, are, that used to be called doctor shopping. It doesn't happen so much anymore because these programs are very effective. Hmm. More recently, the, you know, the, 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 the policies have been more harmonized. More states have the same kind of uh, rules. Their, uh, their volume limits, so how many pills or how many morphine milligram equivalents uh, each patient can have in a set period. Uh, there are caps. There are some exceptions. If you, have, if you have severe cancer pain or it's an acute episode, there are differences. But for chronic pain, they're really trying to manage 
and avoid the circumstance where someone is getting a lot of pain medication um, in an unmanaged way. And so if the patient and their doctors still believe that that's the right thing for them, there are pathways and policies to get that patient to the right volume of treatment that they need. But for the most part, the barriers create enough institutional friction that less needy people don't fight through that is, is the policy aim. Of course, my panelists were expressing some concerns that uh, sometimes the bureaucracy and those obstructions would get in the way of some people getting uh, getting the pain medication they need, and those are the real concerns. That's the balance you make. Is can I get the right medication to the right people, but can I also not, um, uh, and at the same time, make sure that those really needy people, you know, get somehow stuck through the system in a way which, you know, which also protects the vast majority of us who don't abuse opioids and don't have a problem. Sure, and you mentioned up front as, as sort of the human, you kind of summed that up as the human intersection and the need for access. And as you said, you had uh, the founder of a patient advocacy organization on the panel, uh, Nicole Hemingway, um, who herself suffers from chronic pain, as I understand it, from reading her bio. I'd be interested to hear what, what was her perspective on that? Is she, is she fearing that the pendulum could swing too far in, in the other direction when it comes to access? Uh, I mean, she's concerned about that. She expressed sort of an enthusiasm for the popular attention towards these crises uh, and the desire to capitalize on that um, with a positive story about how to get the right medications to people. She, you know, she had expressed, and, and we also had from the, the bio uh, representative, uh, Daniel Friend, had a uh, had the comment about the pipeline, and we haven't had a new active substance in the pain market uh, in, in straight sort of straight pain uh, since 2010. We just had two new migraine drugs or three new migraine drugs, antibody drugs, which is a part of the pain market. But a lot of the migraine patients weren't getting opioids. So if we sub segment the market and we look at the part of the market where prescription opioids play and where they can have challenges. We have, a, we have a number of issues where there's just not a lot of new options. And so we're really managing a playbook and the playbook is about getting the right drug to the right patient without necessarily escalating them and their volume of, of treatment badly. And so she's concerned that the right patient gets that treatment, even if it means an escalation, even if it violates a volume limit, if that's what they need and their doctors determined that, um, she's hopeful that there are mechanisms to allow that. And that's that's really the challenge in this market is if we use one size fits all solutions, we won't have a patient centric view. I think she expressed that really well and really touchingly. Good, good. Hopefully there were some, you know, if there was any policymakers or, um, you know, people in a position to affect policy uh, in the audience, they heard that loud and clear because I think it was the CDC that has introduced tapering, uh, um, you know, recommendations and and, um, and now there's a, a movement among some clinicians to, um, to counter that. And, you know, as you mentioned, the disconnect, the, um, the epidemic, unfortunately, uh, is, is raging. Um, when, you know, when you look at the uh, number of deaths, I think the, the stat from 2016 was 42,000 um, deaths due to uh, or involving opioids in 2016. Um, and yet the um, prescribing uh, has been on, on, the, on, the, on the downward trend since 2012. Um, and so obviously there's, there's some challenges around the illegal market there that need to be addressed. Yeah. And that's, and you know, there's this, there's a step, you know, that, you know, the, the sort of the savvy or focused listener would be curious about is, well, you know, what about other pain treatments other than opioids? Do they, you know, do they get forced over to those? So are we looking at more ibuprofen? 
Um, and the answer is no, we're not seeing the shifting in the legal or the prescription market from, from opioids. So we are seeing, uh, and this, this actually came up from a questioner from the audience today, was, you know, so if it's not going to other legal pain medications, where is it going? Is it going to the illegal market? And the, the challenge is, even though the overdoses are going up and they're, and they're tragic in the, in the numbers and the slope and the scale, and it's, it's, it's an escalation that's really, you know, concerning, um, there's actually no independent data that would let us know whether that's a number of people being forced out of the prescription market and therefore, you know, turning up in this overdose market. Um, I wouldn't call it over, so I guess I'll recorrect that, turning up in the illegal market and then maybe some percentage of those having a tragic you know, event. It's possible that it's the same number of people in the illegal market, but that the uh, that they get unlucky with the mix of drugs that they're having. There's you know a fair amount of popular media coverage that suggests that there's uh, just a, a flow of illegal fentanyl um, you know, in, uh, illegal imports and, and non-regulated versions uh, that are being cut into the illegal product. And so, you know, the question is, you know, is a very multivariate one. We don't have data necessarily to track. Is it the same number of people? Is there a particular problem with supply? With the supplies? Are the supplies dirty? Um, these are questions that are sort of outside our area in the IQV Institute. We're in the prescription market for the most part um, in the analyses we do, but. It was of keen interest to the whole audience and the, and the panelists because we're just trying to figure out where the harm is coming from. And certainly those people are, are dead. Those people have died. They are suffering from this problem. Um, and it's very challenging to figure out if we've solved it by squeezing this part of the prescription balloon, as it were, where's the, you know, why is that not solving the problem? Um, there was, a, and there was a lot to discuss about, you know, the combination, the, the triad, we call it, of uh, prevention, treatment, and enforcement and how uh, different parts of the country have a different level of problem in each aspect, and how there, there's different parts of the country having differing levels of success with different policies. And so I'm, I'm, I'm as flummoxed as most people are about what do you do about this stuff? Because it's not going to be a, a situation where one solution works around the country. We, we're too complicated for that at this point. Sure, sure. And just um, you know, one question I have to ask because we're medical marketing and media. Um, did anyone mention anything about um, uh, promotional practices of the industry implicating those um, in any shape or form um, in the discussion? Um, so, you know, it was, it was interesting. The panelists we had were in a different zone and the audience didn't go there. Um, so it was, uh, uh, you know, it's certainly very topical that we're, you know, we're in the midst of several of the lawsuits um, uh, that are, you know, going through the courts right now and, and are reported all, you know, almost daily uh, around those issues. And I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say that the, 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 when we got to some historical context today, some of our panelists were talking about how things used to be. And that has some flavor. It's on the fringes of what you're talking about. It has some flavor of the, um, the way these medicines were used to be promoted, the way they were perceived to be less addictive, um, uh, which, you know, is now not necessarily the accepted wisdom on the same dynamic. Sure. Well said. Okay. Um, all right. And um, you mentioned that there's been a shift uh, along those lines from, from large pharma uh, to smaller biotech companies entering the pain market. And I'm sure that they, you know, or one might think that they would have a different way um, of promoting these products once they do. So, um, you know, any kind of um, sort of uh, thoughts on that in terms of where we go from here in the future? 
Yeah, it was very interesting. We had two different sort of almost contradictory data points on the pipeline, which I think are, are relevant. And that's that pain overall is the fifth largest disease category in the pipeline overall. Um, and yet it's one of the, it's, it's a much smaller proportion of the venture capital funding um, and, and R&D spend. And so what that, the way you square that is that a lot of the pain research um, is in reformulations of existing products, molecules, or mechanisms, and not necessarily in new active substance research that's going to make it to the market, except for in these areas, like I said, in migraine uh, with the CGRP inhibitors. Um, and there will be some small molecule versions coming into that market, which are certainly interesting, uh, but also um, uh, drugs for things like uh, ankylosing spondylitis and um, uh, neuropathic pain. Um, you know, there's a range of uh, developments that I think are, you know, not currently treated with prescription opioids, but which are core to the pain market. Um, and, you know, again, there are cases where there, there's, a, there's a kind of pain where opioids probably aren't the best choice, but when everything else is said and done, there's something to do. Uh, you know, that might be a, a part of current practice. And so there might be something in the pipeline that would help with that. But it, it's very interesting that sort of, you know, the observation from a bio where the conference I'm at right now is a, you know, is a very entrepreneurial, very sort of investment in research concept, right? That That's how they think they solve problems. That's their hammer. And they think every problem's a nail, uh, as we all do um, when we have that tool. And so, you know, the, the challenge here is, is, you know, that uh, our panelists all recognize, our audience all recognize that innovation might not be the way to resolve this issue. Certainly for the, you know, for the thousands of people who are still, who are in the, in the hot house right now um, and aren't going to, you know, aren't going to benefit from 10 years from now's research product. Hmm. So, you know, there's a, there's a desperate urgent need to resolve uh, these things with uh, logistics, with policies, with action today and not wait for some uh, miracle cure in the future. We need to act today. And that was the key message that everyone was expressing, which was, you know, really powerful when reinforced by some of the, some of the personal stories. Sure, and, and it's a very nuanced problem and a multifactorial problem, as, as you said, so uh, not, not an easy one. Well, thank you for that uh, report uh, from, from the floor of the bio, um, showing your reporter's chops there. Thank you. <laughs> Doing my best. I'll, 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 I'll see you back at the shop. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I did want to shift gears for a moment and just talk quickly. I know you weren't at ASCO, uh, but you know some of the reports, the media coverage out of that meeting, the largest annual meeting of cancer doctors, which took place really uh, this weekend and into the early part of this week um, in Chicago, um, what I read was that more there were there was a lot of news about targeted therapies, which kind of exploit genetic vulnerabilities in tumors, uh, as opposed to immuno, immuno-oncology drugs. Like we saw Kiskali, the breast cancer drug from Novartis, uh, extending survival in younger women uh, with coming from breast cancer. For AstraZeneca, it was Lymparzin, pan pancreatic cancer. Then again, Keytruda kind of cemented its position in the IO market with some five-year survival data in lung cancer. Uh, so all told, some really encouraging data there and more on the way. But in terms of oncology approvals, you found that oncology therapies are moving quickly through R&D and regulatory filings. Can you elaborate on that point? Um, and are there more targeted drugs or more IOs coming down the pipe? So we've got, uh, uh, so I'll start by saying the pipeline is stacked um, that's the, the best way I can describe. There's just a lot in there and it's all over the place. So there are 
there are immuno-oncology mechanisms. The IO checkpoint inhibitors that we've been talking about are targeting specific markers, but we're looking at um, you know, 60 plus of these other mechanisms that we're not seeing yet. So we're looking at uh, significant um, uh, variability and some of them may work out, right? The, the challenge is that it, you know, things in phase one and two may show promise, may not. Um, but there's some, there's some interesting excitement about those mechanisms. There have been some setbacks in the past year. The, the IDO inhibitors uh, had been thought to show some great promise and then didn't. Um, and so that, you know, that it, it, you almost look at the 60 plus mechanisms and, you know, and hundreds of drugs and think, well, some of these have a chance and some don't. And that's usual with R&D. That's the way it works. The cell and gene therapies, um, you know, are interesting as well because they, they could well, if they work, end up with, you know, a single or a very short regimen for a significant uh, duration of benefit. Um, and so, you know, they, they raise some interesting challenges. But what you also highlighted is, you know, ASCO is, is often punctuated by follow-up data for products we already have in the market, extending their indications, reconfirming their, their trial data with post-market data. And so, you know, we expect a lot of that. I, I think probably the biggest thing I would say, as I started with about the, all the number of drug approvals and launches, uh, is doctors are faced with, you know, it's a, it's kind of that Chinese curse, you know, interesting times, but they have, um, they have more uh, options for more tumors uh, and more uh, tools to make selections, whether it's biomarkers um, and other prognostic approaches, they are able to uh, treat more patients for longer uh, with more lines of therapy and more options than ever before. And that's, uh, it's a challenge to keep up with all of that, uh, particularly in this uh, post-Sunshine Act world, where uh, it's harder to get someone to uh, to you know focus uh, on that information. So there's less funding for continuing medical education from the drug companies these days, um, uh, and so there you know it's it's tricky. But there's there's definitely a lot of uh, complexity. There's a lot of options. You know, doctors are looking at: Do I use this this drug in first line? Do I use this one? Uh, you know, how do I decide to run, you know, which biomarker tests to run? Uh, these are all complexities for, uh, for them to consider. And I think that's, that, that's, that's what you see every time we get a new piece of data. It, it just sort of, you know, it fits into a very complicated mosaic rather than being, you know, just a new option. It's, it's, it's in context that's really critical. Right. That's a very good point about the post-sunshine world we find ourselves in uh, resulting in less funding for MedEd from Pharma just at a time when the complexity is increasing exponentially. So just to, you know, to, to wrap up this small segment on the oncology report, I think you found 12 of the new active substances were approved based on a single trial and six cited phase one or two trials as part of their approvals, uh, which indicates that innovative oncology therapies are moving quickly through the R&D and regulatory filings indeed. And it probably really underscores the need for confirmatory post-approval trials. And I think there was just a study published this month in the Journal of Epidemiology. Um, I just happened to see it on Twitter today that showed that the amount of uh, single pivotal trials supporting FDA approval of novel drugs and therapeutic biologic for cancers between 2000 and 2016 um, has increased significantly. Uh, there's, there were 30, 35 of the 100 approvals were based on evidence from a single pivotal trial without any further supporting evidence of beneficial effects. 
versus, uh, you know, I think one when they first started looking at this. So um, another sign of the times. Uh, so, but you have to balance the early access to, to medicine with with that need to to confirm uh, what what one is seeing in well, the right. And when, you know, we should hasten to add that you know the the evidence that we're going to see you know long term and in multiple trials doesn't uh, you know has only rarely ever resulted in that early approval being reversed. Uh, thinking about uh, Avastin and breast cancer is the only one in recent memory where. You know, a conditional early approval um, has been reversed, yeah. and so most often, and particularly in these life-saving conditions, it's not only in cancer. You see this also in orphan drugs um, and rarer conditions, uh, where that single trial is just the ethical thing to do. Um, you know, where it might take years to recruit enough patients uh, to uh, to have statistical power to do the study endpoints. And you know, holding off, waiting for a confirmatory trial that might delay access for patients for you know three, four, five years when they when they might die is something that FDA has been very clear on that they're willing to balance risk and benefit in that scenario. Um, and certainly, uh, most of these drugs end up with a registry or a post-marketing uh, commitment of some kind. Uh, almost you know, almost certainly, if they're approved based on a single trial, they're, they've got ongoing subsequent trials. So it's not an, you know, it's not a, a gap necessarily. It's more of a speed to market and a willingness to accept that these are, you know, these are critical advances uh, for patients, and and that's been arrived at jointly with the applicants and the FDA. Sure, sure. I, I I do like you know where the FDA is going, you know, with, with that in terms of allowing uh, you know compassionate use as well as you know speeding up uh, accelerated approval pathways, uh, especially in the oncology area. So um, can't can't fault them there. Um, so, so let's let's kind of um, bring this uh, to a close by talking about the pharma reports. Kind of come full circle here. Um, the last one we did was 2017's pharma report, which I remember because we had sort of a meme on the cover: "Keep calm, no drug," which was our own kind of daily affirmation for industry at that time. Um, spending growth on pharmaceuticals down, was down that year, or in 2016, following 2014 and 2015, which were big outliers due to things like Hep C and fewer drugs coming off patent protection. But the industry was coming down under the influence of, of pricing pressure. Um, where are we with pharma spending now overall, you know, across all categories? So 2018 finished just under 5% um, on, on a net basis, just under 6 on an invoice basis. And that's, um, that's because we've had a continuing volume growth post-launch window for a whole bunch of drugs, particularly launched in sort of 15, 16. Um, and so, the, you know, the cohort of drugs launched in the last four years um, are contributing significant uh, volume growth for the most part. Uh, new drugs in the market in the last two years and then volume growth for those older ones. Um, dramatically less growth uh, due to price changes over time um, uh, on an invoice basis and on, uh, and on a net basis, that was only 0.3%. So, you know, what we're seeing, uh, and it's, it's not uniform. So the net basis, as we estimated, is what manufacturers take home after they concede uh, discounts and supply chain fees and uh, coupons and all sorts of other concessions, I call them. Uh, but they're in competitive markets, the concessions are very deep, price declines are uh, in some cases double digits. Um, but in other areas, it's more modest or even, or even positive growth. Um, but as an industry overall weighted average, 0.3%, essentially no price growth. Um, and yet consumers are seeing their out-of-pocket costs rise uh, because of insurance design changes. 
Mm -hmm. Because of insurance changes, you said? Yeah. So if you used to have a standard benefit and now you have a high deductible plan, you're going to uh, notice some fairly different cost exposure. And, you know, every so often employers will see their exposure to health insurance costs go up and their choice is to either eat that uh, or to uh, change the benefit design to a high deductible option, which many have done. Good to hear your, your thoughts on, on where we're headed in the future. Uh, okay, let's, uh, let's switch gears again and, uh, and do our speed round. So uh, what's the last book you finished? So I just reread the entire Dune series, which is like nine books, but I'm a big sci-fi head. So I love Frank Herbert and the, and the Dune series and they're doing, a, uh, they're doing an adaptation for one of those streaming services in the next year or so. So I'm really excited. Oh, no kidding. Wow, okay. Second question, Michael, who inspires you? Who's your, who's your role model? Um, so, you know, the, the classic answer here is it's, it's my mom or my dad, but actually, um, I, I ride bikes with a, with a group of cyclists in my hometown, uh, and some of them are cancer survivors and some of them are just survivors of all that life throws at them. Um, and when they ride up hills as hard as they can every Saturday and Sunday, uh, the, uh, the fast and happy cycling crew, uh, from Springvale, Maine, they inspire me every day. Hmm. No. Is that where you're, uh, you're based up in Maine? That's correct. Nice, beautiful state. I haven't had a chance to visit, but I hope to uh, one day. Um, what's the last thing you did to recharge your batteries? Uh, well, strangely enough, I went cycling. <laughs> <laughs> right, that, uh, that, that makes um, sense, I guess. Uh, we're, we've got a group of folks together doing the trek across Maine for the American Lung Association. Uh, in two weeks, and we'll be we'll be doing three days and 180 miles uh, across Maine, raising money for uh, for for uh, the American Lung Association. Wonderful, that's a very worthy cause indeed. Um, all right, uh, can can people sponsor you? You want to throw out a? Uh, they they can if they want to check out my uh, check me out on LinkedIn. Uh, I have uh, I have posted the the information on there, and we'd love to raise money for the charity. Uh, you know, no, no obligation, obviously, but, uh, uh, you know, check me out on LinkedIn and that's where I put it. And, and I'm always happy for that. And, uh, if you have any stories or anyone has any connection to the, the charities or the issues, I'm, uh, I'm always interested in those. They inform my research and they, they keep me grounded in why I do what I do. Nice. Likes are welcome too, I'm sure. Well, absolutely. Thank you, Michael. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks again for your time. It's great to connect with you again and with your audience, and I look forward to doing it again sometime. Great. Well, I'm going to call it there. Um, uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, in addition to our guests, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, that's going to do it for today. We hope to see you tomorrow at the MMNM Hall of Fame event in Manhattan on June 6th. Um, otherwise, for uh, Mark Iskowitz, Larry Dobrow, and Mickey Brown, our producer, um, signing off uh, from the MMNM podcast. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you.